seated. Well, good morning to each and every one of you. We're really glad to see you all here this morning. In Luke chapter 2, we see the account of the shepherds in the field and the angels appearing before them and sharing the good news of Jesus' birth. And it says this in verse 15, when the angels went away from them into the saying that had been told them concerning the child. Uh, What I find neat uh, about that passage is that when Jesus was born, when he left his glorious throne, he didn't come to great fanfare. He didn't arrive in the capital city. He didn't uh, present himself first to dignitaries and royalty. He was born somewhat anonymously in the little town of Bethlehem. And the first tidings of the birth were given to the blue-collared folk of the day, to some shepherds out in the field. God saw it graciously fit to show the good news to them first. And through them, their faithful response of these men was to go right away in haste to see Jesus. The response of humble faithfulness. And then filled with joy, they couldn't stop but telling other people about it. They they wanted to share the good news. And so when we sing some of these Christmas songs, I'm reminded that we ourselves are like those shepherds where we have been shown the good news. We've been transformed and we went in haste. Our coming here together this morning to worship is a response of faith where we come together recognizing the importance and the joy of being here to worship our Lord. And that's why we're really glad that you're all here with us this morning. If you would, would you please take out your worship folder if you didn't grab one, there you can get up and go to the back of the room. There's a little white table back there where you can grab some. In here, you'll find all sorts of information about things that are going on in the church. And inside the folder, if you would, take out your little check-in card. It would be a really big blessing to us if you took a quick moment to fill it out, either on the paper or you can do it on your phone if you download our church app. At the end of the service, you can stick in that, that little check-in card in the either white table at either entrance on your way out. But that's just a real nice, helpful way to let us know that you're here. And also provides you an opportunity to share any prayer requests you have or thanksgivings, things you want to share with us. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to thank the Lord alongside you. So if you feel um, led to do so, please share that with us um, so that we can minister with you and alongside you. If you're visiting with us, whether this is your first time or you've been coming for a couple weeks or a couple months, we just want to extend a special welcome to you. We We really look forward to meeting you and getting to know you better. If you want to learn more about this church, I would encourage you to stop by our welcome desk. You may have passed it when you walked in this morning, but just outside these double doors, we have a welcome desk where there are people there who are eager and ready to meet you and to give you more info about the church and even give you a gift if you have not received one yet, just to show our appreciation and love for you. I'm excited to say that um, next week, a week from today, During the 9.30 hour, we have our children's Christmas program. 
So we encourage you, I know some of you with the kiddos that are going to be in it will be here, but even if you don't have kiddos in it, we encourage you to come and be blessed as the kids and those who have been teaching them and leading them and have been working so hard for so many weeks. We've got a pre-K and an elementary kind of program that's going to be presented, and it's just a sweet testimony to hear them proclaim the gospel news in song and through, through memorized lines and scripts. But it's also just a, a, a neat ministry as you see them up here singing next week to know that for the past couple of weeks we've had a lot of faithful teachers working with them, not just to teach them how to sing a song, but to teach them the good news, to teach them why we celebrate Christmas and to teach them why Jesus had to be born, why Jesus had to come to this earth, not just to live a life that we could never live, but to die a death that we deserved. And so it's just a sweet time. We encourage you all to come to that. Another thing we'd encourage you to go to is, first of all, let me just ask this. How many, raise your hand if you've been to the Goodfield Church that, uh, over there in Goodfield, the Goodfield Baptist Church that we, we now have. Okay, those of you who didn't raise your hands, there's a super cool opportunity for you to go there tonight. And those of you who raised your hands, you should go too. We've got a hymn sing going on there this evening, and you can find more information about that in the worship folder, but this evening, I have a really good time in that church building, and just a really sweet time for us to gather together to really um, see the importance of that ministry that we're praying about together and trying to discern what God's will is to do with that church building and how we can minister to the Goodfield area and around in the surrounding areas as well, and what a sweet time for us to get together in that building and sing hymns, and Christmas hymns in particular, so I encourage you all to come to that bring your kids it's going to be a lot of fun Um, and one other thing resource of the month so last week we had the resource of the month I told you it was the advent book by Paul Tripp and then some of you probably went out to look for it and it was gone those first service people I tell you (laughs) so we got more and we purposely didn't put them out during the first service (laughs) so at the end of this service I highly encourage you to go to our resource center just outside these double doors here, and you'll see a table chock full of those books, and uh, we just want to provide that free for you. It's a resource we recommend to you. It's a great tool for just kind of getting your heart in the right place, focused on the right things during this Advent season. So it's a daily Advent book by Paul Tripp, and so I highly encourage you to pick that up free of charge. We just want you to be blessed by it and encouraged by it and use it. So if you pick it up, you're committing to using it. So use it in your own personal life, in your own personal study, but also use it with your families. Read if they're really short, like a page and a half. They have some discussion questions and extra scriptures to read. Make it a part of your dinner time or in the evening or bedtime routine, whatever. But just use it as a really helpful tool to get your heart and your family's heart in the right place. Well, before we continue singing, would you please bow your head with me in a word of prayer? Jesus, we this morning continue to marvel as we reflect on your birth. We marvel that you left your glorious throne and humbly took on flesh, that you deserved to be heralded and acknowledged and worshiped by everybody the moment you came. But yet you came in silently just to your earthly parents and then visited by shepherds. It was not a big deal as it should have been because you are a glorious king and father i just we thank you for your plan of salvation it was not um not what what people were expecting but it was what we needed 
And so, Father, I pray that you would just help us to resound this morning, to abound in praises to your name. That Please do not let us restrain our lips as we focus on the cost that it took to save us from our sins and help us to celebrate the precious free gift that we have received from Jesus in our salvation. So we ask for your blessing over this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd encourage you, if you're able, to please stand with us as we continue to sing.
Good morning, Newcastle. Good to see you all today. I'll go ahead and dismiss children to Children's Church, so nursery through uh, kindergarten can make their way to the back of the room. And I also will dismiss all other students up through sixth grade to be dismissed for uh, practice for the next week uh, program. Also, I know you're... Um, programs say that Chris Metalman will be doing elder prayer this morning and that Kevin Souter will be having the message. Unfortunately, neither of those is true today. You have a last-minute substitution, but uh, I am thankful, Scott, that you're taking Kevin's part today, and uh, I'll go ahead and handle Chris's. Also, I think it'd be good for a timely reminder to our church and specifically you men Christmas is two weeks from today. So, if you have a daughter, it'd be a good time to remind her to stop and pick up a gift so that you have something to give your wife on Christmas. <laughs> You'll thank me later for that. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father, your word teaches us that uh, your steadfast love extends to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains and your judgments like the oceans. We are so humbled that we can pray to an almighty God who listens and loves us dearly. We take refuge in the shadow of your wings and we recognize that you are the fountain of life. It's our desire to worship you today through song and meditation from your word and fellowshipping with each other. And so we thank you for the brothers and sisters in Christ that you have assembled together today. There's so much ministry taking place each week here at Newcastle, and as the year winds to a close, we can't help but reflect on all that you have accomplished through our people. We're grateful for the talented and gifted men and women who pour themselves into the various work here. Thank you for those who take care of our campus from the buildings to the grounds and everything in between. Thank you for the army of volunteers you've assembled who serve you in so many ways, whether it's making meals for those in need or 
teaching a class to the students or uh, an adult class, whether, we're, whether they're watching children in nursery, the list just goes on and on, and we ask that you bless our efforts. We've been praying this week for our brother Shane Knapp, serving at the Salem Ranch in Flanagan. And uh, we've been thinking about these three new students coming to the ranch in January, and we ask that you would um, just provide a spirit of calmness and peace as this transition period can often be difficult for new students along with the existing students. We ask that you give Shane and his co-workers continued courage and steadfastness to share the gospel of Jesus with each and every young man. And then we ask that you would give wisdom to them as they formulate their action plans for each uh, student and give them the ability to shepherd them according to their various needs. We're also thankful to have a number of gospel-centered churches in Central Illinois that we pray for regularly, and Bethany Baptist has been a, a longtime friend to Newcastle for many years, and so we continue to pray for each other, and we ask that you would continue to shine your face on our brothers and sisters at Bethany, that they'd always hear the fruit or the truths of your word taught clearly, and that they would be a light to their community. We also think of Pastor Rich with the uh, loss of his mom here recently and, and ask that you be with the Burko family uh, through this time of mourning. So now we look forward to being taught from your word. We pray that you'd guide this time of uh, teaching from Pastor Scott as he opens the book of Mark. We pray that the seed planted today would fall on good soil and bear much fruit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to teach you a new song this morning, uh, air quote new song, because it's an older hymn, so many of you might know it, but uh, we haven't been singing it here recently, and so Who Is He in Yonder Stall is a really sweet hymn because it not only highlights the birth of Christ, but walks through his life and up to the death and his resurrection, so a very all-inclusive song, just a simple melody in the chorus and verses, but very beautiful and very sweet words. So as we teach it to you, uh, Season is going to lead us on the first chorus, and then we'll go into the verse. And so we'll, we'll have you stand, but uh, you're welcome to just listen first and learn it, and then sing along as you feel comfortable. So if you're able, would you please stand?
Mandy may be seated. There's some very beautiful lines there in that song we just sang. In many ways, it's really the, the definition of what it means to, to worship, to, to humbly fall at the feet of Jesus, to take the crowns that he has provided for us and to cast them right before him and say we are completely unworthy. That is a beautiful uh, song to begin our meditation here on God's word. So thank you to the worship team for, for doing so. And I would invite you now as we continue our time of worship to open your Bibles to the opening chapter of Mark's Gospel. So Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, have no fear. We got two uh, stellar looking men here who are making their way to the back of the the church and they'll uh, make sure you get one there. Just throw your hand up and they'll pass it along to you there. We want to make sure that you're able to follow along with us uh, this morning. Well, as uh, already mentioned, uh, contrary to what the the worship folder says, uh, I am not... Kevin Souter. I do not look nearly as good as a Kevin Souter does, but uh, you are stuck with me here this morning. And so uh, some sickness hit the, the Souter household this week and um, necessitated some changes. And uh, so we're going to turn our direction in a little bit uh, different way this morning rather than picking up where we've been in uh, Ephesians. Uh, we're going to jump over to the Gospel of Mark this morning. So Mark chapter 1, and I'm excited to serve you as we uh, take you into this uh, glorious passage. So Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to be, and I know you just sat down, but if you are able, please stand in honor of the public reading of God's Word, and we're going to read from Mark chapter 1 uh, down through verse 15. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts with wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is God's word for us to meditate on this morning. You may be seated and we're going to pray and ask for God's favor as we look into this passage this morning. So, Father, we do now turn our attention to your word. We ask for humility of heart as we seek to unpack all of its riches. We seek to desire 
Christ more. And so we pray that you would magnify Christ through this passage. Pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together will be pleasing and honorable to you, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it would seem natural this time of year to jump into a Christmas theme or a Christmas-based passage in Scripture. Uh, And in doing so, most of you know that the beginning of the Gospels is a great place to do that, great place to to find that. You have the, the Gospel of Matthew that begins with a genealogy that traces the life of Jesus all the way back to Abraham and then launches into two chapters of the birth story of Jesus. You go to Luke's gospel, you're going to find something very similar, a genealogy that traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam, and then two long chapters of the story of Jesus' birth. You even go over to John's gospel, and you get a genealogy that sends Jesus all the way back to before the beginning of time, and then several verses, several verses that kind of lay the foundation of the incarnation of Jesus taking on human flesh and becoming man. And then you have Mark. And Mark presents himself as the platypus of the Gospels. Like he forgot who he is and what he is supposed to do. The introduction to Mark's Gospel is noticeably far different than all the others. Just 15 verses into Mark's gospel that we just read here, and we are already at Jesus calling the first disciples. It's, a, it's, like, it's like the DVD player where you have the scene selection, and he chose to just skip over the first couple of scenes and chapters and go right to the middle. And some may see this as an abrupt start to the gospel of Mark. And it leaves us wondering, was Mark the original Scrooge of Christmas desiring to pass over all the Christmas fanfare and just get to the rest? And while some may be disappointed by this introduction, I choose to see it a different way. As I read through the opening, I can't help but think of the epic introduction to one of the most iconic film franchises of all time, Star Wars, right? Now I got your attention. I know that. I know that because some, somebody said after first service, you had me at Star Wars. So, no, right? Even if you don't know Star Wars, you might recognize the image of something like this, right? This is the idea that you have a quick background synopsis of what's going on, and then you're catapulted right into the opening scene, some type of battle, some type of climax. And that's exactly what Mark is doing here. It's a background that sets the stage and jumps right into the opening scene, And all of it is placed here to teach us this morning that the arrival of Jesus is good news for sinners like you and me. The arrival of Jesus, whether we're talking about the Christmas and his incarnation or the beginning of his ministry, his arrival, his entrance onto the scene is good news for sinners like us. And while the gospel is going to focus on the life and ministry of Jesus, the opening verses here find us meeting not just Jesus, but another important character in his ministry, a guy by the name of John the Baptist, or as he is affectionately known in the chosen TV series, Creepy John. 
right? We'll see more about that here in a moment. We're going to look at both of these guys this morning, but I want to begin by seeing how John the Baptist and his arrival into this story helps us better understand the good news of Jesus and his arrival. And we begin by understanding that John the Baptist, first of all, came to fulfill the promises of Scripture. One thing we learn about Mark is that Mark, in writing to his Gentile audience, is very rarely concerned with uh, Old Testament passages. He's rarely concerned with explaining Old Testament practices and way of doing things. And yet, the irony is that in the very opening verses, what does he do? He quotes from the Old Testament here. Quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which is also combined with some passages from Exodus and Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The arrival of John the Baptist created quite the, the stir, and some of it had to do, quite honestly, with his wardrobe choices. I mean, look at this guy. This is... This is interesting. This camel's hair and leather belt. Um, one commentator put, he's like, just as this would not be normal garb for us today, so if somebody showed up here and was wearing this, you'd think to yourself, wow, that guy looks really out of place. Well, guess what? It would have still been in that day and age too. It, it was not fashionable then. It's not fashionable now. It, it, it is different. And, but yet, people would have associated this garb with the garb of prophets, particularly one famous Old Testament prophet by the name of Elijah. We know from First, uh, sorry, yeah, First Kings chapter one verse eight that that Elijah wore this type of uh, outfit, right? John the Baptist. Uh, it's so interesting here because his ministry is taking place where. It's taking place by the Jordan River, which is the exact same place where Elijah was last seen before he was taken away into glory by chariots of fire. So all of a sudden, you got this guy showing up on the scene who dresses like Elijah, who talks like Elijah, who is ministering in the same place where Elijah was last seen. I mean, this generates a lot of attention. Considering it had been nearly 400 years since God had last spoken to his people. That's a long stretch of time. And what was the last thing that God told his people before silence? Well, the last thing he told them in Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 is, Behold, I will send you who? Elijah. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Isn't that interesting? I will send you Elijah. Suddenly, you have this guy who shows up. He looks like Elijah. He talks like Elijah. He probably smells like Elijah. Onto the scene comes John in the appearance and spirit of Elijah, saying, Prepare the way of the Lord. He has come to fulfill these promises of the Old Testament, and of all places, he does so in the wilderness. He does so in the wilderness. Seems like an odd place to make God's presence known until we realize that the wilderness 
is often used by God for significant reasons. It's often the place where God reveals his power and his presence to his people. It's the place where he led his people 40 years before the promised land. It's where he prepared his people before going into the promised land. It's the place where he called prophets like Moses and Elijah. It's the very place described in the Old Testament of new beginnings. That is why John has come. He does not come and do revival in the big cities, but he comes to the boonies, to the lowly, which is the outcast, to say that God is a God who keeps his promises. He is a God who is not yet done with his people, and he is a God who is certainly going to do something big and something new through Jesus. This is why John has come, but he has also come not just to uh, fulfill these promises of the Old Testament, of the Scriptures. He has also come to point people to the Savior. John's arrival would have been considered a, a top news story of the day. If they would have had cable TV, he would have been all over the major news outlets. If they would have had social media, he would have been blowing up everybody's feed. Dude, did you check out the guy who was out in the wilderness in the crazy outfit? Yeah, I heard about it. It, it would have been spread everywhere. People would have known about it. And the attention revolved around three main things with John. First, his behavior. What does it say John did when he appeared? He was baptizing. He was baptizing. Now, we don't think much of that because we see baptisms every now and then here in this service and it's a very marvelous thing. It's a thing we love to celebrate, but it's not unique. It's not uh, uncommon for us. But if you were in the first century, Jewish audience, this is not really a practice in Judaism. Uh, this is usually reserved for people who were maybe converting from uh, their Gentile origins to maybe becoming an Israelite and worshiping the one true God. Uh, sometimes ceremonially to, to, to do some things to, to, to cleanse particular impurities like Naaman did, but this is not a normal practice. But one thing is clear. It is a ritual practice that comes with authority. It comes with authority. John is doing this in the authority of somebody for some particular purpose. So attention revolves around his behavior, but secondly, it revolves around John's message. Not only is he baptizing in the wilderness, he's proclaiming a baptism of what? Of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism for the forgiveness of sins. This is how John was paving the way for Jesus. When it says that he was preparing the, preparing the hearts of the people, this is exactly what he's talking about here. And he's reminding them that no one is naturally righteous because this is a culture where people would have claimed, you know what, I'm, I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm one of Abraham's children. I'm good. Doesn't sound too far from the way that we do things in our own culture today, Right? I have Christian parents. I grew up in the church with, with Christian parents. They taught me the Bible. And because my parents are Christians, we're a Christian family. Or sometimes we even do that through our kids. And we live vicariously through them. But Jesus is trying to, to remind us here, or John is trying to remind us here, that we don't live through other people. Or our righteousness does not come through our family. Each person is accountable to himself. And so receiving Jesus begins with a heart of repentance. And the result was that droves of people flocked from all over to be able to get a glimpse and to, to see what was happening and really even to respond to this message. 
And the other Gospels tell us that the religious leaders, how did they feel about this? They didn't like it. Because one thing's very clear, they like their authority better. They don't like it when someone comes up challenging their way of doing religion, and they certainly would not like it when Jesus showed up and did so as well. So tension around John and his behavior, around his message, and finally, John's lifestyle. And we already talked about his wardrobe choices, all right? Questionable wardrobe choices. But did you catch the part about his diet, right? Look what this guy is eating here. Bugs and honey. Delicious, right? I don't know how many of you had honey this morning. I did with my toast. But I'm pretty sure I did not crush up any dead locusts on top of that, right? I don't know if this is gluten-free before gluten-free was cool or whole foods before it was cool. No matter what, what it really is pointing to here is a different type of lifestyle. It was a, a prophet's life. One that was living on meager means in God's provision because it showed something bigger. Humility. Humility compared to the, the lavish lifestyle of re, the religious leaders of the day, right? That lived in luxury, that lived in splendor, that wore the finest of clothes, that ate the finest of foods. It's a contrast of great spiritual dependence versus great spiritual pride that laid burdens on other people that they themselves could not carry. And so what he's doing here in many ways by just the way he lives is fighting against the religious establishment of the day. And this humility also fed into his bigger purpose as God's messenger, which was to point people to Jesus. Because humility, church, humility points others to Jesus. John's life was all about finger pointing. Kids, you know about finger pointing, right? Something happens in the living room with one of your siblings. What's the first thing you tend to do? They did it. It was them. It was them, not me. Right? Parents, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? You can relate to this. Finger pointing. Jesus, or so John the Baptist, he was also a finger pointer. But he was a finger pointer in the best of ways because John's behavior, John's message, John's lifestyle were like a giant billboard that said, this way to Jesus. You want to see Jesus? This way to Jesus. His words, his actions, everything about his life pointed people to his bigger purpose, which was Jesus. And that's emphasized in the following verses. Verse 7, notice that he says this. It says that he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John didn't consider himself to be on par of a, of a slave, right? A slave would have been somebody, or a, the lowliest of servants, who would have untied the strap of a sandal. He didn't even compare himself to, to that. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. So different than sometimes our attitude, right? Or is that how you view your relationship to Jesus? That you, you, it's not even worthy to be considered a servant. Some of us today, if we're not careful, adopt the attitude that, man, Jesus is really lucky to have me on his team. Boy, Jesus is so fortunate to have me. It's not John. John says I'm not even on par with a servant, of a slave, 
for him. And they add to that then in verse 8, you ain't seen nothing yet, right? Uh, he, he talks about here how I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. One who's coming after me who will do something far greater. You think what I'm doing is amazing? You think whatever I am doing is, is, is challenging the establishment? You think this is great? You ain't seen nothing yet. Wait who's, for who's coming, Something bigger, something better, something more marvelous is on the way. And he is almost here. Because the solution to their sin was not baptism. It was not to, to just imitate a lifestyle of someone like John the Baptist. No, the solution to their problem, the ultimate hope for them was Jesus. Their hope was a sacrificial lamb, one that was spotless and blameless, the one to whom John would point after his baptism, saying in John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming forward and he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he who I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. This is why I've come. This is why I've come to point to him. He is the true source of hope. He is the one that you must truly follow, not me. And so this sets the stage. All of this paves the way, just as John was entrusted to do for the arrival of Jesus in verse 9. So that brings us to Jesus' entrance onto the scene where we see that Jesus' arrival brings good news because Jesus has come to stand in the place of sinners. Jesus has come to stand in the place of sinners. As John's monologue is over, right on cue, Jesus shows up stage right. And honestly, verse 9 is kind of anticlimactic. Uh, you might not see that at first. It seems kind of dramatic, right? It's just a sudden change. Boom, Jesus is there. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. But we have to read this from the perspective of a first century crowd. Here is our hero. Here is our uh, protagonist here. And he's entering into our story of all places from Nazareth. And you're like, okay, so what does that mean? Well, consider this from the perspective of this first century audience. Nazareth is hardly mentioned in all the Bible. Hardly mentioned at all in the Old Testament. It is considered a place that is despised, rejected, and looked down upon. In fact, do you remember what Nathaniel, one of Jesus' disciples, would say about Nazareth when uh, one of the disciples comes to Nathaniel and says, we have found the Messiah. He has come from, from Nazareth. And what's his response? Ew, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, if you're from Nazareth, you're like, ah, knife, knife to the side there. Come on, dude. Doesn't come from Jerusalem. He doesn't come from Rome. He doesn't come from one of these powerhouse places. No. Lowly Nazareth. Like saying that in our 2024 election for a new president, that next president is going to come from Mackinac, right? Or something, right? That's no offense to the Mackinites, but it's just, it's just the reality of it. There's some obscure town overlooked for the most part 
is now having this key figure who is rising to prominence. And if that's not enough, he comes to John and he requests baptism, which sounds super weird considering what we just said about baptism. Right? We were just told that it was preparing people for Jesus' arrival and that it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I know most of you are probably church-going people who have come to church most of your life. If you know anything about Jesus, Jesus has no sin. He has no need to be forgiven. He has no sins to repent of. So why would he need to be baptized? And there's a lot of layers to this that I don't pretend to understand in all totality. But I do know Mark. And I know from Mark's perspective, he's trying to really hone in on a particular point here. And I think on the most basic level, what he's trying to tell us about Jesus and his ministry is that Jesus' ministry is about identifying himself with sinners. About identifying himself with sinners. This in many ways highlights Jesus' coming work, which is his job to substitute himself in the place of sinners. To stand in their place. I appreciate the way Sinclair Ferguson, one of my favorite preachers, says uh, about this here. He says, and I think this is helpful, here already Jesus indicates how he will become the Savior. By standing in the river whose waters repentant Jews had symbolically washed away their sins and allowing that water polluted by those sins to be poured over his perfect being. If you don't understand what he's saying there, he's like, Obviously, this water was not physically washing away sins, right? We understand that. that that's not the case. And, and yet, it symbolically showed this washing away of what was there. If you've ever had a kid play outside all day and then come in and take a bath, you know what I'm talking about, right? You look at that water and you're just like, that all was on you? It's gross. It's grimy, right? Kid baths, no joke. And here you have Jesus, his perfect being, entering into that water where all these people are being washed and cleansed symbolically of their sins. And Jesus himself entering into it and allowing himself to be immersed in it. Showing us that Jesus has come to stand and take the place of sinners like you and me. This is Inauguration Day for Jesus. It's not his coronation as king, but it is definitely his commissioning for his earthly ministry. This baptism showed everyone who he was and what he was now set apart to do. And it's shown to us in details here around his baptism. Notice the, the heavens are, are, are rended open. They're, they're ripped open. This is the same word that's used later in Mark to describe the ripping of the, the temple curtain at Jesus' death. Right? They, they come open to show that God is on the loose. The, the Holy Spirit is descending, uh, not literally as a dove, but like a dove, into Jesus. Not just on him, but actually the, the word there is actually into Jesus. It, it rests within him. And we wonder to ourselves, why does he need this spirit? What does it add to him if he's fully God already? Well, there's a lot of theology to that, but the one thing that's very clear is that there is something about Jesus' reliance on the Holy Spirit that empowers his humanity to carry out his divine mission. And we're going to see that in just a moment. But the third thing we see here, not only this, this ripping open of the heavens, not only the Spirit's descent, but we hear God's voice directly. 
And he receives God's approval. What does God say in verse 11? A voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. Now throughout the Old Testament, who was considered to be God's child? The nation of Israel had. You know what else Israel had done? Time and time and time and time again. They failed. They sinned. They fell short of what God wanted for them. And yet God still loved them. His favor was still upon them, but they were constantly messing up. But where Israel had failed, Jesus has now come to stand as God's perfect child in their place. And he has done so. He has come not just to stand in their place, but to ultimately crush the power of Satan So what's the first thing this newly baptized, inaugurated Messiah does? He is thrust into the wilderness by the Spirit because he's got a showdown. He's got a showdown with who else but Satan. But Satan. This is a good kind of preview for our our next part of the Ephesians study and this idea of spiritual warfare. But Mark usually, this is interesting here, Mark usually gives attention to details And he gives more detail about certain stories than other gospel writers does. But here it's like he presses that fast forward button again. It's very unique. It's very unique in his stories because, you know, the baptism, it's very similar to the other gospel accounts. Maybe a few less details, but pretty similar in length. But we get to to the temptation. You think about Matthew's gospel. You think about Luke's gospel. Lots of detail, giving all the the specifics about the temptation. And here you get to Mark, and Mark's like, it happened. It happened. It's kind of like those small towns that you drive through where there's no population. It's like you're in and you're out in just a moment. It happened, right? We went through that. We saw that. What does that mean for us with these few verses here, verses 12 and 13, what are we supposed to, to learn from this? Well, Mark makes it very clear what detail he does include is important, and it is significant for a particular reason. And so we ask ourselves, well, what does Mark include here then that's significant for us to look at? What does he emphasize that the other gospel writers, uh, when they talk about the temptation, do not? And it's that phrase in verse 13, he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was... With the wild animals. You're like, Pastor Scott, I don't get it. That's okay. This is kind of weird. He was with the wild animals. Well, of course, he's in the wilderness. But none of the other gospels mention anything about this. And he's drawing our attention to it for a particular reason, I think. Because who else was in a a wilderness, was in a place where there were wild animals and yet there was no risk of harm to their life like there was to Jesus. If we think hard enough, we might come to the realization, well, that was kind of like Adam and Eve, wasn't it? I mean, they were in the Garden of Eden with with wild animals. They they had everything they needed. They were not threatened by these, these beasts that were there with them. And yet, Adam and Eve and Jesus all in the wilderness with the wild animals had a common enemy. Do you remember? The serpent, Satan himself. You see, here's the point that I think Mark is trying to draw our attention to. Unlike Adam, Jesus did not fail in temptation. 
Unlike Adam, Jesus withstood the test of the devil. And it forecasted and it foreshadowed for us his work of crushing the head of the serpent. Here is what Mark is trying to show us in this section. He has come, Jesus has come on the scene with a big purpose in mind. He has come as the Messiah, the deliverer, who was promised ever since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God said, I will send you a deliverer. I will send you an offspring of the woman, and he will what? Crush the serpent's head. This is Jesus' way coming out of the wilderness after this defeat of Satan in the wilderness saying, yes, I am that deliverer. Yes, I am the one who is here to crush the head of Satan and to conquer his power. I will do so and I am proving for you right now. I am giving you a taste of that right now. He has come to stand in the place of sinners as their substitute. He has come as the new and better Adam who succeeded where Adam had previously failed. And as such, he is now able to become our new representative. In other words, as all have been found guilty because of Adam, all can be made righteous through Jesus. This is what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, where he says, For by the one man's disobedience, that being Adam, The many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. In the opening 13 verses, Jesus has made it clear why he has come to be our Savior, which is good news for sinners like you and me. The testimony of Mark in these first 13 verses, first 13 verses, is that Jesus is ready. He's ready. Game time. By verse 14, John's ministry is already over. He's been arrested. He is off the scene. He is no longer the one in place. Jesus is. The baton has officially been passed, and Jesus is now on the scene, picking up where John left off, proclaiming the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now you who listen, repent and believe in the gospel and the good news of why I have come. Church, we're left wondering then, what does that mean for us this morning? What are the, the takeaways? What are the things that the Lord would want us to receive from this this morning? I think there's four main takeaways that I would love for you to consider this morning. First of all, this, we can trust the Bible. We can trust the Bible. What God has said, just like he did in the Old Testament, will come to pass. His promises are sure. And we live in a culture today that's trying to undercut that for all the reasons why we should not trust the Bible. I'm here to remind you this morning that the Bible is trustworthy because its author is trustworthy. Time and time again, I am amazed year after year as I continue to study the Bible, just the cohesive nature of how everything fits together. And it's not a mystery as to why, right? Because it has a divine author. And his promises are sure, and he is here to make sure that they come to pass. And we can trust that. We can bank our life on it. That's why we we go to the scriptures for the hope that we are lacking, that we go to the scriptures when we are weak and we need assurance. We go to the scriptures when our faith is failing, and we need to know how to walk faithfully with the Lord. So I pray that you would also truly believe that this morning, if you are doubting, that the word of God is true and you can trust it this morning. 
Secondly, our life is all about making much of Jesus. We could spend our entire time just talking about this here single point. We could spend our, our time talking about John and the, the character study that, that's worth pursuing in his life. But for now, take what we've learned this morning about finger pointing, right? You as a Christian are a finger pointer, okay? I want you to leave here this morning understanding, I as a Christian am a finger pointer. But you're not pointing it to other people. You're not trying to compare yourself to other people. Your life is about pointing people to Jesus, just as it was for John. His life is a model for all of us, always pointing people to Jesus and what you say and what you do. I, I love the way that this comes to, to be in John uh, chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. You should read this later, but this is the story of where John the Baptist and his disciples, they're, they're talking and his disciples are coming to him and they're concerned because they say, John, all these people are now going after Jesus. The, the attention is off of us and, and now they're starting to pursue Je Jesus. We got to do something. And John's like, whoa, 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 guys, I told you this isn't about me. Right? Now that Jesus has come, this is where people are supposed to go. I don't want them following me. I don't want it to be about me. In fact, he must increase, I must decrease. If you want a good life first to commit to, John 3.30. He must increase, I must decrease. That is your life, Christian. John says, my, my work is complete. And I'm satisfied in that. Because less of me means more of Jesus. Third, Jesus came to make all things new. So much of this morning has been spent showing you that Jesus has come to undo the effects of, of sin. And perhaps one of the more unique pictures of this comes at Jesus' baptism with the descent of the Spirit. Because how does Mark describe it? as a dove descending upon him. Without being too, too weird or drawing too many weird uh, correlations to this, I do think it's interesting because when we start to think of ourselves about doves and their role in Scripture, where is one of the most significant places that we see the role in the ministry of a dove? The story of Noah's Ark. Where Noah sent out the dove to look for, for dry land. It had a very specific purpose. And when it found it, it brought back that twig that reminded them and told them, hey, new life has begun. Translation, there's a new beginning. There's a new beginning that is happening. It was a sign of new beginnings that Jesus has come now to make all things brand new. And then fourth and finally this morning, the Holy Spirit is a game changer. The Holy Spirit is a game changer. Uh, many of you who are in the sports world know this, this term game changer. It means you have somebody on your team who makes all the difference, makes your team better, makes it uh, so much more effective than it would be without them. Well, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit is to the Christian. And there's a complex, like I said, understanding of what that looked like for Jesus in his ministry. But that said, it shows us the importance that the Holy Spirit still plays in the life of a believer for us today. Jesus himself stressed this in his final words that the Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin. The Holy Spirit brings to life the words in the ministry of Christ and reminds us of his truths. It helps us fight and say no to sin. The Holy Spirit changes everything for us. And he now calls us to walk in the power of the Spirit and to rely on the power of God's Spirit in the same way that he himself did. Remember, Jesus is not willing to do something 
or call us to do something that he himself is not willing to do as well. He is the great helper, the Holy Spirit is, who changes everything for us as sinners. And that same spirit who worked in the life and ministry of Jesus is the same spirit who now lives inside of you, dear believer. Do you believe that this morning? That this Holy Spirit changes everything for you because it does. Because he does. This is why Jesus has come. So we think about this holiday season, we think of Jesus and his entrance into this world. May we never forget that the primary reason that Jesus has come is in his substitutionary work to identify himself with the people that he has come to save and to defeat and overcome the power of sin and death. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you. We thank you that despite our weaknesses, despite our failures, and all the ways that we have fallen short of your glory, you still loved us enough to send Jesus into this world as a substitute for our sin. Father, we pray that this passage would point us back to the hope, Lord. Our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in the people around us. Our hope is ultimately in our substitute. And that is why Jesus has been sent into this world. We pray, Lord, that we would walk in the power of the Spirit. That same Spirit that lived in Christ is active in our lives today. We have all that we need. And pray that our lives now, Lord, would function as one giant billboard that to the watching world would say, look at how amazing this Savior really is. We cannot do that on our own. That's why we need your Spirit. So work in our hearts and our lives today for the glory of your great name we'd ask. Amen. If you would, please stand as we sing in response to the word. In the strength that God has.
line there is filled with a lot of hope, isn't it? When with Christ we one day stand in glory. I, I just would pray that this morning that that is the hope that you are living in. Uh, so often we live in this world that is competing with our attention, trying to convince us that this is our home, that this is our hope, uh, that we are children of this world, not this heavenly kingdom that we've talked about today. My prayer for you would be that if Christ is truly your all, then your life would live in such a way that says, this world is great and all, but this world's not my home. My hope is the day when I will one day stand in glory and do what we talked about earlier in the song we sang, that we would cast our crowns before Jesus and say, it was all about him. My worthiness comes from him, not from myself. So that's my prayer for you this holiday season as you celebrate the coming of our King into this world to remind yourself of what he has truly come to redeem you from. So this morning, let's pray out our benediction that we've been using from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. As we close our service, let's do that together now. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all those who are trusting in Christ who is our substitute would say, amen. May God bless you this week.